This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to talk about North Korea. My dun, name is... Dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. You remember North Korea? It's something we heard about in the news maybe about a month ago, but we've heard about other things since then. But occasionally, you might hear North Korea. And by the way, my name is Seth There. I'm here with JJ Genflone. We uh, are graduates of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies Master's Program. JJ loved it, so she thought she would stay on. Right, JJ? Mm. Yep, just linger forever, just picking up PhDs like candy corn. But North Korea, well, we're going to do a series of two, a dyad of podcasts on North Korea. And today we're going to talk about trafficking and or forced labor that happens from North Korea. And then a week or two from now, we'll talk about trafficking and more specifically forced labor that occurs within North Korea. North Korea is a challenging country because it is rather closed and they're not all that keen on human rights inspection or inspection in general. And so when people say things about North Korea, it can be hard to confirm. And then you can decide between, well, are they really truly crazy does the west really just lie about them but you know it's hard to get data but that does not mean we don't have any data and that we don't have reports from people who have left and uh, in this case we're going to talk about people who have been trafficked to other places so uh carry on jj since you're gonna largely lead this particular episode so yep So when we're talking about external trafficking of the North Korean people, we're largely talking about two countries in particular, because as I'm sure most of you out there are aware of, North Korea doesn't exactly have a lot of friends in the international sphere. So we're talking about places where people from North Korea are trafficked with or without the consent or the understanding of the government. You're talking about two things. One, what places are geographically close to North Korea, in this case, Russia and China, that don't have as much as a militarized border as, say, South Korea and North Korea have. And then you're also looking at governments who, for whatever reason, have been a little bit more receptive or a little bit sort of more willing to come to the table to deal with North Korea than, say, like the U.S. has, right? So we're largely talking about when we talk about external trafficking, We're talking about the trafficking of men and women from North Korea to Russia and China. Now, when we're talking about the trafficking, though, this is such an interesting thing for me because normally in in human trafficking, when we're talking about like labor trafficking or sex trafficking, you're actually talking about a pretty even gender distribution, right? So what, what happens is that you see men and women who are being trafficked to say work in like the blueberry harvesting trade, or we see men and women who both become sex trafficked. But this is kind of an interesting case. North Korea is because it's very clearly gender split with the vast majority of people being trafficked into China being female and the vast majority of people being trafficked or had been being trafficked. We'll talk about that in a second into Russia being male. And this, by the way, is not counting people who are are defecting or fleeing North Korea and who have, through whatever reason, have found a way to get into Russia or to China or, like, ideally into into South Korea. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here are people who have made deals with brokers or have been actively sold into a slavery role, people who have actively been human trafficked. And so, again, it's women, North Korean women in China, and... North Korean men in Russia. And so what I'm going to talk about first is the North Korean women in China. Because this is, I would say, of the two, if if we're going to establish hierarchies, I think this is the bigger one. Because as I'll talk about in the case with the Russian trafficking, that's actually a, a trafficking mode that has started to die out. Whereas the trafficking of North Korean women into China is only on the increase. 
so just in terms of like the number game and things that are continuing north korean women in china are a big issue right and i suppose there are drivers for these particular issues yeah and in in both cases the biggest driver as we've talked a lot about on the show of human trafficking is vulnerability right and if you were trying to think of how to build a model of a human being that is incredibly vulnerable in every single aspect of their life, it's a North Korean citizen. This is someone, especially a someone from like a farming community, a lower class, so a non-elite North Korean citizen who has very little access to education or literacy, if any, extremely low access to food. There's been a famine that's been going on in North Korea in in some way, shape, or form since the 90s uh, that really in the mid-2000s really jumped up like crazy. And now that China has stopped its food aid and stopped its buying of North Korean coal, this famine has only ramped up. So you have widespread famine. You have no medical care. You have a government that provides no support to its citizens, a government that when we talk about our next podcast frequently harms and imprisons its citizens – what are you know you're so so vulnerable and so if you're a young north korean woman and you don't have the financial ability to bribe a border guard to get into say russia or china or south korea all you have to sell is yourself so a lot of times what will happen is that north korean women who are absolutely desperate to get out because they're either starving to death they they feel that they need to make money in order to both bribe someone to provide medical care and then gain access to medicine or they just are vulnerable to they hear that there's a job somewhere and they get picked up by someone who forcibly moves them across the border so since the mid-1990s north korean women have come into china and of those women roughly 80 percent have been listed as commodities for purchase now the reason why these women are wanted in China is that as a result of the one-child policy that China had and starting in 1979, but largely throughout the whole 80s recently, uh, as of 2016, ended. But what happened in the one-child policy in which the Chinese government limited families, unless you were a farming family, but limited families to having one child In a culture where male children are vastly preferred, what happened was a widespread gender imbalance where lots of people had sons and very few people had daughters. So there is this huge gender imbalance where there, in some cases, depending on the area, you know, you can have five men for every one woman in sort of a rural or a economically like disadvantaged area, you're going to have this huge gender disparity. Well, as industrialization has ripped through China and there's been more and more factory jobs and more and more service provision jobs, women have been the preferred worker. Women are thought to be, and maybe we should do a podcast on this, Seth, but women are thought to be better industrial workers because they're less likely to unionize and more likely to put up with dangerous conditions in order to make money for their family. It's a weird psychological thing that we could get into. But so because women are perceived as being better workers, factory owners have sent out and, you know, service provision jobs, like people want secretaries, that sort of thing. They've called out and said, well, we only want to hire women. So what happens is you have these rural areas in China or these economically disadvantaged areas, think places where mining used to be big and is now gone. You know, we see these communities all over the United States too, right? Where there was a brief boom and now not much there. What happens is then you have tons of men in these areas working extremely low-level jobs or experiencing chronic underemployment, low levels of education and literacy. They want to get married because a part of their culture says that they absolutely have to get married. They absolutely have to produce children, but they have no money. They have no social capital. And the women who already there was going to be really fierce competition to marry in their area, have largely left the area. The women of marriageable age have left the area to go pursue work. And because of that, now what might have been a gender imbalance of, you know, five to one jumps up to 10 to one. And so what do you do? You start looking outside 
a sort of your area into wider China to find brides. Now, sometimes, and maybe again, I'm pitching all these podcasts today. What happens is actually the, the, the kidnapping of women within China or from things like Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, that sort of thing. But what's happening more and more often is instead you go to a bride broker who says, well, I can bring you in someone from North Korea who is of your age, who you can marry. Now, it's illegal for them to be in China. China doesn't recognize North Koreans who enter into the country as refugees. China says that these are economic migrants. They're not fleeing a government that would harm them. And as such, they don't need to be treated under the United Nations, what is it, the Code of Refugees, the UNHCR, oh, the UN Refugee um, Mm -hmm. protocols, which China did sign on to and says that they they do follow the rules of the UNHCR. The problem is, is that eh, if you say that they're economic migrants, not refugees, you don't have to treat them like refugees. So these women are in China illegally, and if caught by the police, they will be forcibly repatriated to North Korea, where they will end up in prison camps or executed for being traitors to the state. So these women who come in and experience forced marriage. So they make a deal with a broker or they're sold to a broker. They are then, the, the women, through the broker are then sold to a man and boom, you're married. It's not a legal marriage, but you're, you're with them. If you're lucky, you end up with a good partner. That's your best case scenario. And because no matter what happens, you will receive no government aid. You cannot be counted as a person. So you can't be active in society. You know, you can't just go to the grocery store. You need papers. So you are, no matter what, going to be trapped at home. You can't receive medical care. You can't attend school. If you're caught at any point, you risk death. So, oh, and by the way, the children that you have, if you are repatriated, you will be separated from them. And there's also a chance that those children could either end up in a home for foundlings or also repatriated to North Korea apart from you because they're not legal Chinese citizens. So there's this fear that, well, my children will die. So what typically tends to happen is these women are incredibly, incredibly isolated and oftentimes end up in these horrific abuse situations. And one of the stories I'm gonna link to you that's just kind of a sample of the anecdotes that we get from people. It, a woman who was chained to a radiator in the kitchen of her home for four or five years uh, by this husband. And so you're just, you're just so at risk and so vulnerable and you can't go to anyone. There's no one to call to rescue you because the minute you make it known that you exist, you're going back to North Korea. There, there is no, way for you to sort of fight that deportation status, it's that you're immediately there. And bear in mind too, these are women who speak Korean. They don't speak Mandarin or they don't speak the the dialect. China has, depending on who you ask, anywhere from 50 to 500 dialects that are spoken, that are sort of diminutives or sort of pre-communist revolution China versions of, of local languages. And so these women who are in these really small areas don't speak the language, can't read and write, don't necessarily know where they are in the country, have very limited access to information. It's not like they were used to having the internet and a cell phone and TV before they left North Korea. And so when women do try to leave these incredibly dangerous situations with their husbands, you know, quote unquote husbands, they often are are forced to choose between taking their children with them or not. Or if they do choose to leave, what often happens is they just then get cycled right back into human trafficking situations where they end up trafficked to another person to work in the sex trade or trafficked to another person to be a domestic worker. This is one of the reasons why I have a really hard time with human trafficking legally being separated into labor or sex, because in these instances of forced marriage, it really is both. You are constantly being used as a sexual object meant to pleasure the person who's bought you, 
you have no autonomy to say no, but you're also expected to keep the house and do a lot of labor. And in often cases, sometimes, uh, again, one of the things I'll link anecdotally is husbands, you know, renting their wives out either to cook, to clean, or to have sex with other people to bring in income. So this is really a thing where people are just so exploited that it isn't – I don't know how people survive this. This to me is as, as close to an example of pre-Civil War slavery that still exists in the world where it's n noticeable differences along racial or ethnic lines that can be identified. You're not Chinese. You're Korean. You live in this town. What's up? You have no legal rights, you have no legal protections, and everybody in the community, for the most part, treats you as the property of the person who purchased you. And by the way, you were purchased for probably less than $1,000. Do you know whether these are mostly rural areas or how much of it is urban, that sort it's, of breakdown? Uh, very rare, very, very rare for it to be urban. The few cases I've seen where it is urban, it's because it's a family unit of trafficked force wife husband who have moved into an urban area to pursue some sort of work but 99.9 .9 of the time this is happening in super economically depressed rural areas a lot of times happening more in northern and western china that are closer to the border there are lots of cases and like a quick google will show you all the images of North Koreans who are either survivors of trafficking or who have been smuggled into China, they will frequently, South Korea has an embassy in Beijing, and you can see these photos of people flinging themselves over the fence because there are Chinese police officers, PLA, which is a military police force, um, lined up outside the embassy to keep these people from jumping into the embassy. Because once they enter the South Korean embassy, then the South Korean embassy can issue them passports and documents and get them out of the country so you'll see these horrifying images of people like with children trying to launch themselves like through guards and over the fence of of because of the agreements that china has with north korea to repatriate all of north korean citizens that are in country okay and people in rural areas would have a different hukou than people in urban areas well, not necessarily. No? So what Seth, no. So what you're talking about, the hukul, the is your residency permit, and that's tied to where you were born. Very few people no, – so what the hukul is supposed to do is it's supposed to keep you in the place of your birth. Okay? It's kind of like Jesus has got to go back to Nazareth <laughs> for registration in order to be born, right? So it's supposed to keep you there. And if you don't have a, a hukul, like a hukul for your movement – to a city, then you can't access government services, you can't attend school, you don't count as sort of a legal citizen of that city because you didn't have government permission to move there. Something like 94% of migrant workers who are working in industrialized areas don't have a valid Hukou residency card. You know, it says that they are supposed to be like out in Xinjiang and where they really are is Beijing because that's where they came for work. And these people just don't access the services. And every now and again, there'll be a police raid. I know that, that right now I've been hearing from friends that still live and work in China that with the One Road Summit coming up in Beijing, that there's been a government crackdown where they're stopping kind of everybody in the street and demanding to see papers and proof of, of residency, both foreigners and uh, native Chinese as well. And so what happens if you are caught is that you can serve a little bit of jail time, you have to pay a fine, and they send you back to your area that you're that you're meant to be in. What really the hukou ends up harming for the most part is children because then you don't get access to sort of vital care when you're a child, but also then you have no access to education. But most, very few people are working in a place that has a valid card. It, it would be like, how many people do you know who have like a driver's license from Georgia, but they've lived in New York's like state or city for the last like six years. They just keep re-registering their license whenever they need to back home because it's just convenient. <laughs> you know, I haven't lived, physically lived for any appreciable amount of time in Pittsburgh, where I'm, where I'm from initially, 
for over six years now, I still have my Pennsylvania license and I still have my mom's house as my permanent address because that is sort of the one constant in my academic life where I'm moving around. So legally, I'm a Pennsylvania resident, but functionally, I'm a Coloradian. And that's kind of what happens with, with, with the residency cards. What makes it different is that if I'm still not a valid resident and I call the, the Chinese equivalent of 911, which weirdly enough is 119, <laughs> they, they will still come and take a report. I can still be a victim of a crime. I can still go and be put on trial. I can have my day in court. I can still get a lawyer. I, I can register to check in at a hotel. I can go shopping. It's just that the level of to be to be a North Korean citizen in China, though, is to be invisible for safety purposes. And the minute you become visible in any way, shape or form, your life is in risk. Ellen, I keep thinking you probably should mention that you have spent some time in China. Yeah. In case people are wondering why it is that I know so much, uh, I went to China for the first time in 2000. And I want to say six? No, no, way too early. Probably 2011-ish. I'll have to pull up my passport and check. It's been a long time. As a student, I then returned to China after I had graduated from undergrad uh, as an intern. That internship then turned into employment for almost four years, living and working mostly uh, for about two years straight in Beijing and then another two years working in the province of uh, Zhejiang, which was beautiful in a, in a city called uh, Ningbo. And, and you, yeah, where is that on the map? Okay. So basically it's, it's the coast of China. So if you see Beijing and then track your finger all the way down to Hangzhou, those are kind of the two main areas that I lived in. It's obviously huge. Uh, but for the last, the last two years I was there, and the, and the first two years that I really felt like China became my home was in Zhejiang province. I have I have a lot of love for Zhejiang province. Uh, and so after I had, oh, and it helps that, and so in undergrad I had studied Mandarin, Chinese, as well as Chinese history. So I had, I had minors in Chinese history and Mandarin and then lived there. Uh, my husband joined me when I was there, so lived with him as well. And then... When I came back from from living in Zhejiang province because of the friendships I had built there, I that's actually what got me into, into international relations and got me into human trafficking into the field that I was in. When I was in Beijing, my friends were largely, you know, it's it's like living I always say it's it's the Chinese version of New York City. It's a lot of artists, a lot of punk kids, a lot of, you know, graduate students and students, a lot of kind of people who who are elite or have privilege in one way, shape, or form. When I moved down to Zhejiang province, suddenly my friends became people who were lower middle class, you know, middle class, lower middle class, um, working people so factory workers teachers that sort of thing but then also sort of people in this sort of hidden economy so illegal factory workers domestic workers uh sex workers that sort of thing and those became sort of the people that i i talked to the most and hung out with down there and really formed a connection with and in particular there was one person who had, had been a domestic worker for a family for roughly 15 years and she and i became quite close she reminded me a lot of my grandmother and i had just lost my grandmother and you know but just the realities of her life really concerned me and i got really concerned about chinese migrants and and just it kind of i left my heart a little bit in Zhejiang. i i think about it almost every day uh so when i applied for graduate school because i knew that i wanted to pursue my education I picked a school that had a human trafficking center and an exploited labor, you know, a heavy influence on exploited labor or sort of migrant workers, which Corbell at the University of Denver does. And then I liked it so much from continuing working with these populations here in Denver that I stayed on for a PhD. So, and I've continued as a international relations person, they always ask you for your area of focus. So I've continued with my Mandarin study and I've continued on my, on my Chinese sort of history and culture and, and study work. So I actually take, I have a HSK6 exam 
in a few months, which is sort of like a Chinese proficiency exam. So everyone, cross your fingers for me. Do you know any more about the relationship between China and North Korea? That's part of the international discussion there. I believe there's some trade between them. Is that correct? Yeah. So, well, mm, see, this is something that when you and I had first discussed doing this, I would say probably months ago, you know, it would have been a very different story than what it is now. Things are changing really, really quickly between North Korea and, and China in a way that I think benefits China doesn't benefit North Korea at all. So in the past, and by the past, I mean since North Korea sort of actually the Kim regime gained its prominence until roughly, I would say, 2015. That's the line in the sand I'm going to draw. China and North Korea had pretty close diplomatic relations. They would have envoys come back and forth. They had sort of shared cultural days. In fact, in Beijing, and I'm not sure if it was also in Shanghai, but I know for a fact in Beijing, there were several sort of restaurants and cultural centers that were run by North Korean elites where you could go and like watch North Korean TV and have like traditional North Korean food. Uh, the North Koreans do have an embassy in China that is staffed. It wasn't uncommon to hear of like elites attending school in China or for, for Chinese envoys to go to North Korea. And the reason for that, it varies depending on who you're listening to or who you really, who's, who's really pushing it. You know, um, they sign, well, history lesson really quick is that China fought in the Korean War in support of North Korea. So there's that sort of already starting in the 1950s, that sort of arrangement, right? And then when the Korean War, I guess, arm, armistice? What would it be? Like the the ceasefire in, in 1953, because the war never really ended. China, in a partnership with the Soviet Union, because China and the Soviet Union at the time had really close relations because gay communism, they sent a lot of money and aid to North Korea to help like restructure North Korea to build up infrastructure because remember a lot of what the land that that North Korea got in that was sort of it hadn't been built up it wasn't like economically strong area so they did things like they established joint ventures to build like factories and mining towns and that sort of thing uh, China actually sent a lot of people there um, they sent volunteers there not just as fighters, but like in the post-war to be like, okay, who needs medical training? You know, who, we need to build some railroads. Let's go. And I want to say the either the very late 70s, but certainly before 1982, the two countries signed one of my favorite treaties because it was the Sino-North Korea Mutual Aid and Cooperation Friendship Treaty, <laughs> which is just like the perfect government document name, right? And in it, China said that they would render military and other assistance by all means to its ally against any outside attack. And it's been extended twice since then. It, it ends in 2021. I'll be very curious to see if China continues this. This is not a, a treaty dissimilar from the one that the U.S. has with Japan, where we will we will provide immediate, like an attack on you is an attack on us militarily the only difference is, is that obviously north korea has been permitted and obviously been pushed to keep its military what makes me think that it probably won't be prolonged a third time in 2021 is that right around 2015 ish China, as China's rise becomes even more meteoric, and it seems very quickly that China is going to replace the U.S. as a hegemon, or, or the hegemon, or at least is going to gain equanimity with the United States, and sort of, certainly economically, but also like militarily and sort of in public opinion, that they're, they're going to hit equal, right? China starts treating North Korea less like this ally that provides a really nice geographic buffer from the rest of the world world coming into China and as a as sort of a little brother it can use to screw with the US and seems to view it more as a liability because the CCP so the Chinese Communist Party will have 
these talks, trying to get North Korea's nuclear weapons program to to end. They will make statements that they firmly oppose North Korea having nuclear weapons. They will, in WikiLeaks, you will see comments made by elites in the CCP that they want that like North Korea is is being an errant child and misbehaving. And in 2016, the US and China together issue new sanctions against the North Korean regime citing the United Nations, citing rules of the United Nations. So this is all encapsulated this year. So they've had this long history of, of relations and there was a long time where borders were kind of a little bit more porous in northern China with North Korea, that, that has changed. But, you know, Xi Jinping has never met with Kim Jong-un. He's the only Chinese president that hasn't met with the leader of North Korea. The only one. And while they share a border, the fact that sanctions haven't passed, in particular, uh, China used to send a lot of food aid because North Korea has been experiencing massive famine for decades now. And also China used to buy lots of coal from North Korea. 2016, they said, we're not buying anything else. Done, that was part of the sanctions, uh, which can, I, you know, makes up a ridiculously large portion of the North Korean economy. So these relations between North Korea and China really break down fast, really, really break down fast. So I really don't know how things are going to progress as things go forward. Would China, you know, if there was a military action in North Korea today, would they participate? I don't know. Well, JJ, thank you for the context. I found it helpful. I'm sure everyone else will as well, especially since North Korea is such a big topic in the world. Uh, I will briefly mention when uh, JJ mentioned hegemon, that uh, there are international relations theories. One of them is hegemonic stability theory mm-hmm. that for the world order, which is highly economic, that it requires some sort of hegemon to stabilize and keep things working. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. has done that to a large degree to make the international order work to work through institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to say, countries, if you want more loans, you should make structural adjustments and do things that would be better for international trade. There's a lot that's controversial about that, but the point I'm drawing in is the U.S. and world institutions have done a lot for that. And as the U.S. is currently reevaluating its place in the world and what role it wants to have. China, one of the other big players in the world who needs resources from other countries. I mean, trade is very important for them. And so they might have a more prominent role, especially on the economic hegemonic front. Now, having clarified that, uh, there's one thing I'd like to hear a little more about with North Korea, and that's like how do women get brokered like who are these women that get brokered from north korea into china oh okay so these women these are women from extremely economically disadvantaged areas so these are north korean women who whose families are currently experiencing famine who are who are not considered sort of political elites right Mm -hmm. and so let's say that i'm one of these women and i need to get out of north korea right away there, there are kind of two avenues I can go to. I can go to a smuggler, and I can tell that smuggler, here, I have money, get me out. Great, they do it. Now, I'm still at risk of being trafficked once I'm in China, but the actual act of crossing, crossing the border hasn't trafficked me. Okay? I've just been smuggled with my consent. If I don't have that money, which is often, often the case, that that's rare, that people have money, what they will do is they will, will go to a smuggler and say, I, I need to leave. They'll say, well, if you don't have money, I can sell you. And so in exchange for being brought across the border, they are sold to a Chinese man. 
And oftentimes this is a network of several people who are working as smugglers and matchmakers. So that once the girls arrive in China, they're immediately taken directly to the person who is their husband. And the fee that the husband has paid to marry this unseen woman goes directly to, to the smuggler and the trafficker. That's sort of the, the quote unquote bride price. And this is still terrible because these women are still up for the same levels of exploitation, the same levels of abuse, the same levels of mistreatment. But at least they've they've gone into it knowing I'm making a terrible I'm I'm making a terrible choice, but it's the best choice for me. What happens in the third case is that not unlike sort of other victims of sex trafficking that we've we've talked about, these women are like say approached on the street and they say, "Hey, I've got a job for you. You'll come clean houses for me in China. And you'll make a lot of money you can send back to your parents. Or sometimes in some cases, it's just flat out abduction. You know, women report people breaking into their homes and just stealing them. And when they they finally come to or when they finally realize they're in China, they're married to someone. And so they didn't choose to come into China But now that they're in China, to be returned home would be to go to a labor camp. And so those are kind of the three avenues. With the second and third, the knowingly sort of selling oneself but not realizing how truly vulnerable one's going to be. And then one where it's just literally you're snatched in the street one day. There's There's a fourth category that I'm not talking about here, which is the selling of children. Because I think it's an entirely separate issue. It is not unheard of to hear of North Korean families selling their children, like giving their children to a smuggler. Uh, the family's not deriving any money or benefit from it. The smuggler is the one making all of that money. But parents who view this as an altruistic act that I, I had a child. I don't want them to grow up here in this state because this regime is terrible. I don't want to see my baby starve to death. I will give him to a smuggler who oftentimes has a nice story that there's a Chinese couple just waiting. And then you just have to cross your fingers and hope that the baby is then sold into China to, you know, a loving home as opposed to, you know, a factory. And you just have to hope. So we'll move from there then to Russia. And I'll note that uh, JJ, you wrote two articles on North Korea Mm -hmm. for the Human Trafficking Center. One of them was about wives in China, and the other one you had titled Men for Wood with this epic picture of Putin and and associates standing next to wood. So as opposed to being women for wives, Mm -hmm. now we have men for wood. So (laughs) this is, again, something that's radically changed, actually, in, in the year or so since I wrote this. Russia has decreased its connections to North Korea in many ways and has decreased the number of people it is sending to logging camps and in fact in many cases has completely pulled back and closed them. This isn't to say that people are not still working in these logging camps and not to say that North Korea is still not externally sending men out for work. It's just that it's not as present in Russia as it used to be. Right. However, but, but as oh, I understand God. it, this is part of the phenomenon of North Korea sending out men to work. Oh, yeah. No, North Korea has done this for a long time. Um, if you have, again, one of the things we talk about in international relations is how do you solve a problem like a lot of men between the ages of 18 of 30 and 35 who are unmarried, economically depressed, and hungry? Because those tend to be the people who will light your state on fire from the inside because they got nothing to lose. Those are the ones that tend to start civil wars. Those are the ones that start to have terrorist attacks. So what do you do? How do you solve a problem like a population that you find dangerous? Well, you sell them. Is You get rid of them is really the long answer. And one of the ways to do that is to sell, it, sell them. So there have been reports of North Korea shipping male workers to 
a variety of different places across the Soviet Union. And then once the Soviet Union collapses, largely to Russia. But you also see reports of North Koreans in, in sort of places that you wouldn't necessarily expect, like North Koreans who are shipped to Bulgaria, a contingency of North Koreans who are sent to Poland to work in a factory. It's, it's a very sort of weird, very closed off group because normally these are people who are sent to work in a country of the language they don't speak. They're forcibly shipped out, literally cattle car style. They are put on a train and they are shipped out to work. And then once they are in country, there tend to be military North Korean military guards with them at all times. So there's no integration of the North Korean workers and the local population. At least with the sort of women who are trafficked into China, there are lots of reports of Chinese citizens who, seeing that these women are being abused, will get involved and try to help them. A lot of Chinese people who are involved with a number of church groups will get involved and try to help them and actually smuggle these women out of the country. Here, because oftentimes what's happening are people are at an industrial site, these men are at an industrial site, they're at a logging camp, they're at a mining institution, because they're in already a pretty remote place, and then you add in the fact that they're being guarded, it's very similar to sort of concentration camp style labor. It's it's you're not integrating with the local population. And while there might be a population nearby who like knows like, oh, down there a few miles into the left, there's that weird North Korean group of guys who are always like working on, you know, manufacturing tea bags. They don't talk to them. They don't interact with them. They're not involved. Now, this still stems the, the fact that North Korea started to send its, its men out for work to the places in the Soviet Union it did actually came from that Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation that I had mentioned that North Korea had also signed with China. This is all stuff coming out of the Korean War, or, or as it is known in the East, the War of American Aggression. <laughs> So this this is all sort of coming out of that initial conflict where you have communist powers of the Soviet Union and China backing North Korea and the and the democratic western world sort of backing South Korea. And so what initially happened in a lot of these cases was the Kim regime had this large population of people that it couldn't control and it needs to get rid of them. It also needs money. North Korea has always been a resource drainer. It doesn't have a lot. It doesn't have a, a lot of natural resources. It also, because of just the land distribution, they have a really hard time. There's not a lot of arable land. So they have a really hard time doing mass food production. And then also it's just a place that time has sort of forgotten. Industrialization and technology haven't really taken off in North Korea due in part to the fact that the regime has been very much a bubble. Right? So... To get rid of these men and to get money, North Korea initially starts shipping its men sort of all over the Soviet bloc countries, saying, hey, are there, are there jobs that your people won't do? Answer comes back, like, yes, we have people who will not go to like the Far Eastern regions. They will not go to Amir. They will not go to Siberia. This is not a place that they want to go. But we've got a lot of resources up there. And North Korea goes, all right, great. We got people. And what's actually horrifying about this is that if you look at the initial contracts that were signed, what is now Russia, but the Soviet Union at the time, got 65% when, when they split the profits from these camps. Russia got 65%. The Soviet Union got 65%. North Korea got 35%. And the reason for this split was that it was considered that by giving up the natural resources of like wood, sawdust, pulp, coal, precious metals, by giving those up, the Soviet Union had given more than North Korea had because the people weren't worth as much as the stuff. So because the people are worth so little, North Korea only gets 35%. And that to me is just like the coldest like example of when we talk about human trafficking, about the dignity of people being stripped away, is that you're told that you're worth less than a tree. 
you're not as valuable to your country as a tree is. And so this continues. The, these camps stay through the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. In 2013, the number starts to decrease. And it doesn't decrease because like North Korea suddenly makes a decision that this is wrong or because Russia or some other Eastern European countries, you know, at this time of sort of the spread of nationalism and we don't want immigrants taking our jobs. It's not that they're like, we are people want Siberia. <laughs> they want to be lumberjacks. It's not that. What happens is that North Korea figures out because of the spread of industry that it's actually much more cost effective to send these men that they're shipping out of country. It's much more effective to send them to like Cambodia to work in a factory. So to move them to East Asian countries to work uh, to East or South Asian countries to work in industrial work. It's it's much less expensive for the state to, to get them there. It's much less expensive for them to have guards there. And they make more money. They'll get more of a profit share. So in 2013, the numbers are halved and they've steadily been declining. I believe it's really hard to get numbers on this, obviously. But from what I understand, there's only one logging camp currently open. I have seen no reports uh, with the exception of, of a report of a small camp in Poland, but I've I've seen no other sort of reports. For a while, Moldova was getting a lot of stuff reported about it, but I haven't seen anything recently, just because this population is being shipped now down south as opposed to up north. Now, these workers, they are forced workers, so they experience things like whipping, they experience torture, constant beatings, uh, if you refuse to work, you are put in a camp prison and or repatriated to North Korea. If you try to run from the camp, you can be killed. And what the workers are paid for, for this really robust, really serious, physically demanding job is you get three bowls of rice. And that's it. No, no protein, no meat. Uh, there's lots of reports of men like eating tree bark or trying to to make grow potatoes or, or sm start small gardens and things like that to try to survive and here's the part where it gets tricky so you and i get asked questions all the time seth like well if you're paid can you still be a human trafficking victim right like if you get a salary does that negate the fact that you're trafficked and the answer is no just because you're paid a pittance doesn't make it not trafficking if you can't quit your job. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you get paid, if you can't leave, if you're tied in for life, if if you misbehave or you go against the orders of your boss, if you're beaten and possibly beaten to death, who that's that's not a job. That's that's human trafficking. And so these workers do get paid. They make less than roughly 200 USD a month, uh, which is a fair bit for North Korea. The problem is, is that a lot of workers who will initially sign up because they hear it's 200 bucks a month because the camps are a pretty even split between people who have been forcibly removed there to work because they're political dissidents or their relatives of political dissidents. You also just have people who've signed up to come work because they want to feed their families. The problem is, is that if you're only being given roughly three small bowls of rice a day, you know, three cups of rice, and you only make 200 a month, you have to try to, to buy food from the company store or you'll die. You have to pay for medical care. You have to pay for like, uh, they don't provide any sort of heat source. So like you've got to pay for the wood, like you've got to buy wood that you've cut from your bosses to heat your house so you don't freeze to death at night. So that money goes very quickly and, and good luck trying to get it home because everything is monitored. So there's a lot of reports of guards stealing the money and things like that. What's insidious about this to me is that just like China will say that these women in, in these North Korean women in country are economic migrants, they're not refugees, so they don't deserve protection. And so they kind of tell this story to make it seem less bad, right? Russia was telling, or I guess is still telling, but just the numbers have decreased, a story that the workers who are attempting to leave are attempting to break a contract. And because of that as a contract, it's like a civic matter. So of course they should be expatriated back to their home country. 
And that, that to me is a little crazy. Also, I think that in this thing, it's kind of easy in a Western perspective. And uh, I'm sure we've all heard, you know, it's really easy to blame like the Russians, right? Or like the Chinese, particularly if you're coming from the US, the sort of like context of we don't trust, you know, communist governments and things like that. We isn't like the Western world. But I would like to point out that the companies that are running out of Russia are largely companies themselves that are coming out of the Western world. They're like joint English-Russian companies. The largest one that was in, that was using North Korean workers, the like the largest factory camp or like logging camp producing stuff was called the Russian Timber Group. And the Russian Timber Group is run by a, by a Russian, but it's an, but it's headed up by an English guy. (laughs) And like, so that, and it sells through England. So it's, you don't get a pass because you're like, well, I don't know necessarily where like this press board bookshelf I bought came from. Like, it's not like these evil, like I'm picturing like Rocky and Bullwinkle style communists running around doing this. It's commerce working through people in both of these countries. Now, Seth had had mentioned North Korea sending its men elsewhere. And again, as I did mention, North Korean men get sent to East Asia to work in factories. I can't find any numbers on how many of them or where they are precisely or what factories they're working in. They have done a really good job about keeping this on a tight, a tight range. So if you are a listener out there and you have information or or if you have any sources you'd like me to look at, please, by all means, send them. I would love to do a follow-up where I I get more in depth on it. Unfortunately, when it comes to having access to things, finding, finding real details about North Koreans is hard. Well, and with that, we'll uh, close our episode on external trafficking from North Korea. What, what? And be listening for our episode on internal forced labor with North Korea soon. Probably Bye, next y'all. week. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.